Do you remember at Christmas time growing up that you got presents that you knew you needed but you really didn't want? You know, there were certain things you definitely wanted. You told your parents, or if you're like my son, he will pray about them in my presence out loud. You know, he knows God wants to should hear these things, but I should hear him too as well, just in case. There were those presents I remember opening up, white socks and underwear. And, of course, your parents say, oh, but you needed these. You didn't want them. You didn't care if you got them, but they were wrapped up and you needed them. And you managed to eke out a polite, thanks, Mom, thanks, Dad. On a much greater scale, I'm sure Paul the Apostle felt some of the same emotion when he talks about a thorn in the flesh that was given to him. Something he didn't want, but something that he recognized he needed by the grace of God. And according to Paul, it was given for a specific reason. That thorn in the flesh, as he calls it, was better than the alternative, which was being puffed up in his pride and losing his ministry altogether. The pain was for a purpose. A modern example might help. Professional sports trainers excel at overriding pain signals. If an athlete, say in basketball or football or baseball, is injured, they often rush into the training room where the physician will inject them with a painkiller so they won't feel the pain that occurs during that sports activity. One NBA basketball player, during an injury, ran into the locker room, got an injection of Marcaine, a very strong painkiller, only to go back on the court to continue playing the game. He still had the pain, but the signal was blocked. Coming down from a rebound, a loud snap was heard throughout the entire arena. That injured ankle had now become a broken ankle. As the tibia was snapped, he couldn't feel the pain, but because he canceled out pain signal, it caused a premature ending of his basketball career. Now, that's why Paul says, I prayed three times and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, more gladly, Paul said, I rejoice or I boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here's the setting in which this was written. Rebel forces had invaded the church. They were called Judaizers, legalists, who made great boasts in their own authority and put Paul the Apostle down. In fact, according to Paul the Apostle, they would say things to the Corinthian church like, ah, you know, Paul the Apostle, he has great words of authority when he writes letters, but up close he's a wimp. In fact, look back at chapter 10 for just a moment. Look at verse 10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is contemptible. Now, why would they say that? Well, it could be that that's how he looked. According to one ancient description of Paul the Apostle, we don't know how accurate it is. It says he was a man of moderate stature, curly hair, scanty, crooked legs, protruding eyeballs, large knit eyebrows, a long nose, and thick lips. That's Paul the Apostle, a sort of a Marty Feldman kind of a guy. 
and they put him down. And so from chapters 10 through 12, he defends his apostleship. And it doesn't defend himself. He defends his calling that God gave to him. And for 21 times, he uses the term boast. Now what he's doing is he's playing the part of the fool in the ancient dramas. He sets himself next to the Judaizers who bragged about their own authority. And he says, fine, now let me brag a while. Let me act the fool. But he brags in the very thing they were coming against. And that was his weaknesses. In fact, he says back in chapter 11, verse 16, I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I might boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. But you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. You put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we're too weak for that. But in whenever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. And then in chapter 12, verse 5, he says, Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. Now, chapter 12 is the climax of his apostolic defense. And uh, in this chapter, he describes an experience very unique that he has with the Lord that happened 14 years before the writing of this epistle. He kept it secret for 14 years. It was sort of a life-after-death experience. It's the experience that many people are fascinated with today. There's many newspaper articles and books written on what happens to people when they go into the emergency room and supposedly die for a period of time, go through a long tunnel with a bright light and hear soothing voices. By the way, the only ones you can trust are biblical life-after-death experiences. Though they're fascinating to read, I find they're very imbalanced in this world. There's a lot of stories about the bright lights and the soothing voices and how nice it was, and pat, pat, pat on the back, you're going to be all right. But Dr. Morris Rawlings wrote a book called Beyond Death's Door. He says, I've seen hundreds of patients have these experiences, and at least half, if not more, don't see nice bright lights and warm, soothing voices. They see grotesque figures writhing in pain. And he said, I believe there's a hell as much as there's a heaven. He says, the reason people don't write about them or physicians don't write about them is it's too embarrassing. But Paul has an exciting experience of being caught up to the third heaven. Now, as we look at the first several verses of chapter 12, we're going to divide it up as Paul did. In verses 1 through 5, we see that God honored Paul. Then we see that God humbled Paul. And then we see that God helped Paul. You may not be able to relate to all of these experiences, but at least the last one or the last two you will be able to. God honors him, God humbles him, and finally God helps him. Or maybe for better ease of memory, you could look at, at it this way. Paradise, pain, and provision. Either way, that's how we'll divide the text up. Let's look at verse 1 now. Through five, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations in the Lord. I know a man in Christ. Now he's describing himself in the third person. And we'll see why in a minute. I know a man in Christ 
14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Of such a one was caught up into the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast. In other words, it's me. Yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For although I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Now Paul establishes his credibility as an apostle and he says, all right. Playing the part of the fool, I'm going to boast, but not in myself. But this is what God has done for me. If you want to talk about a man of God who had visions and revelations, let's start with me, he said. Now, Paul the Apostle was a man who had incredible vision activity. He saw spiritual movies like no one else did. If anyone could boast in being close to God and getting spiritual insight, it was Paul. On the way to Damascus, he was knocked off his, burst, his beast of burden, whether a horse or a donkey, we don't know, and the risen Christ spoke directly to him, Acts chapter 9. In Damascus, he got another vision of a man named Ananias coming to help him and to minister to him. When he was in Troas one night, he saw a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he was in Corinth and he was discouraged over his ministry, another apparition, a vision. God said, Paul, hang in there, buddy. Paraphrase. Cheer up, man. Keep speaking the words that I give to you. And he kept going in his ministry. When he was in Jerusalem, he was in the temple praying. The Lord came and spoke to him. And he said, Paul, get out of here quick. Leave. They're all against you. Well, he didn't get out of there quick enough. He was arrested. But while he was arrested, God didn't leave him alone. Again, the Lord appeared to him and said, Paul, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify about me in Rome. I'll preserve you. Then when he was on his way from Caesarea to Rome in Acts 27, an angel of the Lord came and appeared to him and said, Paul, be of good courage. If everybody remains in this boat, they're going to be safe. Those were the visions he had. And then he speaks about revelations, and there are many revelations, of course. We're reading one of them right now. So much of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Spirit of God was penned by Paul. And to the Ephesians, he said, By revelation, God made known to me the mystery, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. God revealed to me that he would make a church, Jew and Gentile, taking out the walls and making them one, fellow heirs in the kingdom of God. Then there's this unusual vision that he speaks about in chapter 12 of being caught up, as he says, into the third heaven, to paradise, to see things and to hear things no one else had ever seen nor heard. In fact, it was so awesome in an experience, he said, I don't even know if I was in my body or not. I don't know if physically I was caught up or if it was just a vision. My spirit went there and I saw these things and, and I'm writing about them. It was so real, it was so awesome, only God knows if it was something in my body or out of the body. We don't know a lot about this, but there's something that's interesting to take note of. Number one, Paul speaks in the third person. He says, I know about a person. 
He does that for a couple reasons. Number one, Jewish rabbis often spoke third person so as to take attention away from themselves. Number two, it was a way that Paul was showing his humility rather than being puffed up. Because he says, so that I wouldn't get puffed up, I got a thorn in my flesh because I had so many visions and revelations. So as to appear more humble, he speaks third person and then eventually says, okay, of such a one I will boast, but I will not boast in myself. Second thing to notice, it happened 14 years before this letter was written. But this is the first we hear about it. 14 years ago, somewhere between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 11, around 43 A.D., something happened to Paul the Apostle. And because this vision and this revelation happened, a thorn in the flesh was also given to him. And as you're going to see, it was a nagging physical affliction that carried with him for 14 years. During those 14 years, the man who experienced the thorn in the flesh at his own hand performed many miracles. He was a man of faith. People were healed, signs and wonders accompanied him, and yet he had a nagging physical affliction. Third thing to notice, Paul never bragged about it. He never brought it up in any writing until now. He didn't want to give anybody the glory, even himself, except the Lord. You know, anyone who had an experience of being caught up into the third heaven and seeing and hearing these kinds of things, it'd be hard to keep a person quiet. He'd want to brag. He'd want to have book contracts, movie contracts, certainly go on Christian television, be it all the Christmas specials. Hey, you can make a lot of money off of visions and revelations like this. Paul didn't want to get anybody the glory except God. So he kept it quiet. In verse 2, he says he was caught up, harpazo, caught up or raptured, literally, into the third heaven. What does that mean? The third heaven in ancient cosmology is where God lives. The first heaven is the atmospheric heavens. The second, the celestial heavens. The third heaven is the ultimate dwelling place of God. Now, man has succeeded in flying jets through the atmospheric heavens. We have succeeded in walking and correcting Hubble telescopes in the celestial or the second heaven. But man has never made it to the third heaven without the help of God. You can't get to that throne room of God without God's help. Some years back, a Russian cosmonaut by the name of German Titoy, after he got back from one of his space missions, said, Some people say there's a God out there somewhere. Well, in my travels around the earth, all day long, I looked around and I didn't see him. I saw no God. I saw no angels. Well, it's because Gurmi didn't go far enough. He only went to the second heaven. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. And then in verse 4, he calls it paradise. He says, I was caught up to paradise. Literally a walled garden. He's drawing from an ancient Persian term. A walled garden or a paradise was a garden that a king erected to bring the common people within the garden to confer a special kind of a, a pleasure upon that subject. And that was the fellowship of the king where that person would sit in the king's presence for a period of time and the king would talk to him intimately and daringly and walk through the walled garden. In other words, Paul said, I had the trip of a lifetime. 
I have been where no man has gone before. If you want to brag, Judaizers, hey, I can boast about visions and revelations. You know, I can sort of imagine Paul the Apostle conveyed into modern times, speaking to dignitaries, and you have a head of state at a dinner party, and he comes up and says, you know, I've been to the White House and the Kremlin and the Vatican and every house of government in the world. And people go, ooh, wow, pretty famous, awesome. An astronaut walks up and says, I walked on the moon. And they look and they see Paul kind of dressed in tattered clothes. Where have you been? Heaven. You mean you've flown? No, I've been to God's place. We hung out intimately together. I've been to the third heaven. I had incredible visions and revelations. In fact, I don't know if I went bodily or just spiritually, but I've been in the very presence of God. That was how God honored him. Let's see how God humbled him. Verse 7, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. God knows how to balance our lives. The Lord knows how to provide blessings Has God blessed you? I think every Christian here could say, God has blessed my life. But God knows that all blessings can have a tendency to make a person prideful and puffed up. And so God knows how to mix, prescribe just enough burdens along with the blessings. As he did here with Paul the Apostle. In fact, Job said to his wife when his wife said, okay, just curse God and die. He said, you speak like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God only? And shall we not also accept adversity? God knows how to balance it out, and we should accept both. God gives blessings, but also permits burdens. But when he gives burdens, it's always with a purpose. And Paul's about to find that out. In fact, he's telling us his experience. He's going to say, God did not allow this burden to break my back, but to bend my knee that I might be conformed into his greater purpose. Now, Let's just recap over the last few weeks. We've been talking about suffering. We've been talking about the presence of evil in the world and why Christians suffer. We found that there's a number of reasons why they do. There's not one basic, simplistic answer. One reason we suffer is we're humans. We're growing older, whether we like it or not. We can use all of the surgery and wrinkle cream there is, but we're getting older Just a good look at your face early in the morning with bright lights on it will show you that. There's no escaping it. One out of one dies is still the record. We can also suffer because we do dumb things and we suffer consequences sometimes. We can be suffering the consequence of a rebellion or a disobedience and we get into trouble. We've seen that. We can also suffer because we put toxins and chemicals in our bodies, and after a period of time, the breakdown is enhanced. But we can also suffer, among many other reasons, by the will of God. In fact, that is a phrase Peter uses. If you suffer by the will of God or according to the will of God, and Paul says he suffers here by the will of God. It shook him. He prayed about it. He wanted to get rid of it. But God seems to say no. He balances out the pleasure with the pain, the blessing with the burden. He honored him. He humbled him. 
If you've ever been by the ocean shore, as much as you might like quiet coves, you notice that the rocks in and among the quiet coves at the ocean are jagged rocks. But out where the waves are beating violently and tempestuously against the shore, those rocks are smooth, beautiful, polished, well-formed. Though it's nice and quiet in the cove, the real character rocks that are polished and more valuable are the ones that get beaten a lot. And Paul got beaten. His affliction, he says, was to keep him humble. Now notice he describes it by the term thorn in the flesh. Now what do you think of when you read that? A splinter. Most people think of a splinter. Like you're out gardening. You're working with the rose bush. And, ooh, got a little thorn there. A thorn in my flesh. Or I've been cutting wood all day. And I picked up some of the wood to bring it in the fireplace. And I got a thorn, a splinter in my flesh. Except the word here is literally translated a stake. And it was a large long, sharp stake used to impale a human being. I've got this impaling stake in my flesh. In other words, I am carrying around an ongoing, nagging, physical, physical affliction. It's a thorn in or literally for my flesh. It's a locative sense. It's tormenting my flesh, my body, a thorn in my flesh. Now, what was it exactly? We don't know what kind of ailment he was suffering from except... In comparing Scripture with Scripture, it would seem that he probably suffered from some kind of an eye disease. Poor eyesight, if that uh, description is right, that he had these protruding eyeballs. It could be that he had vision problems. In fact, there's a couple of a hint of it, a couple hints of it in the book of Galatians. We know that Paul dictated most of his letters, but he writes to the Galatians and he says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. He didn't dictate the letter. He wrote his own letter, and he wrote with large letters with his own hand. And before that, he said, You know that because of physical affliction, I preached the gospel to you at first, and I know if it were possible, you would have plucked your own eyes out and given them to me. So it could be that the thorn in the flesh was this runny problem with his eyes, and maybe that was one of the reasons he had so many people traveling with him, including Luke, the doctor, the physician. Look carefully at the wording in these verses. He says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh, notice, was given to me. It was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. The words, was given is called aorist, passive, indicative. It doesn't matter if you remember that, except for this reason. The wording indicates that the giver of this gift was God. And if you were to roughly translate this, God gave me a gift of a thorn, allowing a messenger of Satan to hit me with a fist, literally, to punch me out, to buffet me physically. Now that's interesting. There seems to be the same mix as in the book of Job. Job was accused by the devil. Hey, let me at him, God. I'll show him a few things. He'll curse you to your face. The devil wanted to get at Job. God permitted the devil to do it. God did it for his glory. Satan did it for the ruining of Job. We see two 
people at work, Satan and God, and the same individual, two different motives. One wants to destroy the faith of Paul. The other wants to build the faith of Paul. A gift was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Folks, we do not understand the purposes of God. We do know this, though. God is in control. He does permit things to happen to us that we don't like, but they are under the sovereign control of God. Satan cannot work without divine permission. And if you ever struggle and wonder what you're going through, where is it coming from, is it God or the devil, is it me? Rest in Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. You know, you could take things that are inherently bad and evil and you put them together and they can become good. We see that in chemistry. You could take two poisons, sodium and chlorine, put them together, sodium chloride makes table salt. It's beneficial. God can take something you'd look at and go, I don't want a part of that. God will say, I'm going to give it to you anyway. You don't like it, but it's going to be woven into your life and the result, the byproduct, will be something beneficial and helpful, like table salt. It will spice up your life. It will give you character. God can permit it. So what does Paul do? Well, he says in verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord. See, it wasn't, well, I kind of have a little sore, God, and well, when I remember it, I'll pray about it. He pleaded with God. He did the natural, normal thing any Christian should do. Pray about it. And he begged God. He pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from him. Can you imagine those prayers? Something like, oh God, please remove this thorn. Remove this nagging stake. It bothers me. And God, you know it's a distraction. You know, Lord, that I'd like to serve you with all my heart. The only thing is I'm hindered from serving you because I keep thinking about this nagging thorn in my flesh. If only you could deliver me from it, Lord, I could serve you more effectively. Perhaps he prayed like that. We know that he did pray to get it out of his way. Now, can you relate to that? How do you pray when you're afflicted? The first thing you pray for is, Lord, please, would you just take it away? Lord, please heal me. But sometimes our prayers are that there's only one alternative. Lord, if only, if only you could make my body stronger, then I know I could serve you more effectively. Lord, if only my wife would listen to your voice like I do and see that I'm called to this and we're both called to this, if she'd only be more spiritually sensitive. Oh, Lord, if, if only my husband weren't such a creep. Lord, if only that annoying person at the office was removed, I could share the gospel more effectively. In other words, you're saying, God, I can't be more effective until my situation changes. I had a man call me from Washington, D.C. area this week or a couple weeks back, forget which. Listened to the show on WABS, found my home number, called me. He said, Skip, I have an ailment. It's kind of a rare disease. It's something that is brought on by several different things, but it causes me kind of embarrassment publicly. It causes me to twitch and so forth when I'm in public. Yet my heart's desire is to play music for the Lord in foreign countries like the Soviet Union. Do you think God could ever use me with this physical condition of weakness that I have? 
I said, well, he did Paul. Paul had a stake in the flesh for 14 years. Didn't slow him down. Oh, people made fun of him like the Judaizers. They said, oh, his bodily appearance is so weak. He's weighty in his letters, but he's a wimp up close. Didn't hurt Paul. I say if Paul could be used by God effectively, you could be used by God effectively. You see, some of us are so busy telling God what he ought to be doing about our condition that we don't stop to listen to what he's saying. We're keyed into that one thing that he must do without listening for the alternative. Paul, my grace is enough. Well, let's look at that provision now. Verse 9. He said to me, my grace, you could translate that a number of ways, my unmerited favor, my blessings, my mercy, all of it put together, my grace, my provision is sufficient for you. And my strength is made perfect in weakness. I don't think that's the answer Paul wanted. Do you? I prayed three times to get rid of it. I wanted God to say, yes, my son, voila. I wanted God to answer my prayer like he answered the prayers of perhaps many of the people at Iconium and Lystra and Derby when they saw miracles and signs come from my own hands. I saw miracles. I was the instrument of God to perform them. I wanted God to say yes. I asked him three times. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. I think at first he thought, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I don't think it is enough for me. In fact, let me ask you a second time and a third time. Again, I find it ironic that here's a man, 14 years of effective ministry, including miraculous signs and wonders, doesn't get healed himself. Why? Somebody simplistically might say, well, it's because Paul didn't live at that high platform of faith like he should have. He was a human and he failed too and he could have received God's healing. Really? That's not what it says here. It says God answered him and said, my grace is enough. In other words, N-O. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Which brings up a very important question and a very touchy and disagreement kind of a discussion about healing. Is there healing in the atonement? I am asked that often. And people will say, wait a minute. The Bible says, by His stripes we are healed. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. And if it says that, it means that healing is guaranteed in the atonement. Well, I agree and I disagree. I agree that healing is provided for Christians. I've seen Christians be healed. There's many New Testament promises beyond the Gospels that show that healing works. I've been physically healed. So I agree with it. But healing is not guaranteed in the atonement. And I emphasize that word. It's not guaranteed. It's provided for. There's a rule when we interpret the Bible... The first rule is called the rule of context. You interpret every text by the text that's around it. It's context. And Isaiah 53, in its context, says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. Now, that's quoted in the New Testament by Peter, who saw many healing miracles of Jesus. And this is how he applies it. Peter said, Who himself bore our sins 
in his own body on the tree, our sins. That's spiritual, not physical. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. Peter clearly shows that it pertains to spiritual, not physical healing. Here's the problem. Many people, when they say, see a word in the Bible, think it means the same every single time it's used. It does not. Context determines the meaning as well as language. So just because it says healing over here and it refers to physical, does it mean healing over here? Does it refer to spiritual? For instance, in the Old Testament, God says, I will heal your backsliding hearts. That's spiritual. Now, Matthew does use Isaiah 53 in regard to physical healing. But he chooses a different text. Not by his stripes we are healed. He chooses Matthew 53, verse 4. When Jesus is at Capernaum, heals Peter's mother-in-law. And people are gathered at the door all through the afternoon and evening, and Jesus healed them all. Matthew says that it might be fulfilled that he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So healing is a benefit for the believer. But all of the miracles of Jesus Christ happened before the atonement, not afterwards or as a result of. They were in fulfillment of the messianic ministry of Jesus Christ. They weren't because of the atonement. He hadn't even died on the cross yet. It was before the atonement. But let's suppose that Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 did refer to physical healing as well as spiritual healing. And so every time you're sick, it says, It's guaranteed by his stripes I am healed. If that's true, we have a very unwelcome corollary. Here it is. If a person who claims to be a Christian and trusts in the Lord dies because of a disease, and you stand back and you say, well, it's because he didn't have enough faith, then it could also mean that that person wasn't saved. You say, what do you mean? Simply this. If he didn't have enough faith to be healed, maybe he didn't have enough faith to be saved. Because if it refers to physical and spiritual, and they're both accessed by faith, then you could conclude, hey, he died, he didn't have enough faith. Well, maybe he's not a Christian. He didn't have enough faith to be saved as well as healed. You wouldn't hear many people daring to say that. But they would say, well, he didn't have enough faith, that's why he died. Not true. So what did God say? He said, well, Paul, my grace, and let's get to that issue, my grace is sufficient. The word he said is in the present tense. In other words, every time Paul asked, God said it again and again, the same thing. He prayed once, God, take it away. My grace is sufficient. God, please take it away. My grace is sufficient. God, one more two, one more time. Maybe strike three and I'm out, but here it goes. Please take away my thorn. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Did God answer his prayer? Yeah. How? By removing the thorn? By letting it remain. Why would God take away something that has brought so many wonderful benefits? Like humility. Like communion with God. No, no, Paul. Instead of removing it, I'm going to give you my grace to handle it. To endure it. That my strength would be so visible in the midst of your weakness. Notice that God did not give him any explanations, just a promise. You know why? We don't live by explanations. We live by God's promises. He didn't say, well, now, Paul, 
The reason you're sick, let's go back now to the fall. He just said, my grace is enough. A simple promise. When you are afflicted, what should you do? Well, it says in James, is any of you afflicted? Let's pray. And I think you should pray that God would heal you. You say, Lord, I have this problem. Give me your grace. By His grace, He may remove the affliction, or by His grace, He may let it remain that you would learn a lesson. Please don't minimize that, folks. Please don't minimize that. There was a woman who came to a pastor. Over a period of years, she had so many afflictions in her life, true story. Her husband was dying of a loathsome disease, and he had problems seeing. Uh, She would see everything for him, and then she was getting problems and getting sick, and they had financial problems. One day the pastor called and said, I want you to know that myself, my wife, and the people in this church are standing up for you in prayer. We're praying for you. She said, Pastor, can I ask, what are you praying for? Well, um, he said rather sheepishly, I'm praying that God would give you the ability to sustain, but also if it's God's will that he'd heal you. She said, would you pray one more thing, please? Would you pray that I will not waste this time of suffering? It's for a reason. I don't want to waste it. Now think about that. That's exactly what James says in chapter 1 of his epistle. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. He gives liberally. He doesn't chide or upbraid. And that is in the context of asking for wisdom while you suffer various trials. Knowing that this suffering of your faith or the various trials causes this production of these certain attributes. And if anyone lacks wisdom, ask of God. So when you suffer, Lord, don't let me waste this time. What is it you're trying to show me? What thing are you trying to work out? Instead of saying, I bind you, I rebuke you, get rid of it. Of course, I do pray that God would get rid of it. But he might say no. And I say, okay. It's obvious this thing is here to stay for a while. What is it you're trying to show me? And he was trying to show Paul, I don't want you puffed up, buddy. You've had so many visions and revelations. You've been used so mightily. You could get puffed up. To keep you humble, according to Paul, God gave it to him to work out his character. That hurt. I graced enough, but he says, therefore most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, Don't think that Paul's a masochist and that he loves pain, that he's psychologically unfit. When he says in verse 10 now, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities. It's not like he goes, oh boy, oh boy, pain. He's setting himself against the Judaizers. He's saying, you're boasting the fact that you're strong and you say I'm weak. Well, that's exactly what I boast in. Because when I'm weak, he's strong in me. And so I take pleasure in in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Awesome. Awesome way to look at it. How's a pearl formed? A pearl is formed by an irritation, by pain. A foreign body, like a piece of sand, wedges its way into that oyster, irritating the muscle. The oyster responds how? By secreting knacker, a substance to cover over the irritation. And it sends over another one and another one. And over a period of time, out of much irritation, something of great beauty is formed. Paul said, three times I asked for this irritation to get out, but instead it stayed that a pearl might form. 
Let's sum this up. I want you to walk away with a few important points to drive home. Know this. God knows what you need a whole lot better than you know what you need. He's the great physician. Ever walk into a physician and say, Okay, now, Doc, here's my problem, and you ought to write the prescription for this many milligrams for this long a time. No, don't treat yourself. Let the doctor do it. God knows how to offset your blessing with a burden that he may permit. He knows what you need. He'll prescribe it. He'll take care of it. He knows how to offset the burden with the blessing, the pleasure with the pain, the honoring with the humbling. Secondly, there's something a whole lot worse than physical sickness. According to Paul, it's spiritual pride. And God may wish to temper it. Three, affliction, no matter what it is, need never hinder effective Christian service. Oh, Lord, I'd serve you if. Now you can serve me now. Oh, but I'm so weak. That's the point. Watch how strong I can be in you. Now, if you're a dad, you know that if a child of yours calls out, whether they're an infant or an adult, it's natural for you to respond and come to their help. Listen to this little quip by Max Lucado in his fine book, He Still Moves the Stones. He said, some of you pray like a Concorde jet, smooth, sleek, high, and mighty. Your words reverberate in the clouds and send sonic booms through the heavens. If you pray like a Concorde, I salute you. If you don't, I understand you. Maybe you're like me, more like a crop duster than a Concorde. You aren't flashy, you fly low. You seem to cover the same ground a lot. And some mornings it's tough to get the old engine cranked up. If you struggle with prayer, well, I've got just the guy for you, a fellow crop duster, a parent with a sick son in need of a miracle who comes to Jesus. The Father's prayer isn't much, but the answer is, and the result reminds us that the power is not in the prayer, but in the one who hears the prayer. If you can do anything for him, please have pity on us and help us, the Father says. It's the honest prayer of a hurting man. And since God is more moved by our hurt than our eloquence, he responds. That's what fathers do. That's exactly what Jim Redmond did. His son, Derek, a 26-year-old Briton, was favored to win the 400-meter race in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. Halfway into the semifinal heat, a fiery pain seared through his right leg. He crumpled to the track with a torn hamstring. As the medical attendants were approaching, Redmond fought to get to his feet. He set out hopping, pushing away the coaches in a crazed attempt to finish the race. When he reached the stretch, a big man pushed through the crowd. He was wearing a T-shirt that read, Have you hugged your kid today? And a hat that said, Just do it. The man was Jim Redmond, Derek's father. You don't have to do this, he told his weeping son. Yes, I do, Derek declared. Well then, Jim said, we're going to finish this together. And they did. Jim wrapped Derek's arm around his shoulder and helped him hobble to the finish line. Fighting off security men, the son's head sometimes buried in his father's shoulder, they stayed in Derek's lane to the end. The crowd clapped, then stood, then cheered, and then wept as the father and son finished the race together. What made that father do it? What made the father leave the stands to meet his son on the track? 
Was it the strength of his child? No. It was the pain of his child. His son was hurt and fighting to complete the race. So the father came to help him finish. God does the same. Our prayers may be awkward. Our attempts may be feeble. But since the power of prayer is not in the one who hears it, excuse me, the power of the prayer is not in the one who says it, but it's in the one who hears it. Our prayers do make a difference. Oh God, remove this from me, said Paul. My grace is enough. Oh God, please, my grace is enough. God got off the stands and helped him finish, not by healing the injured, but by helping him through it. Not by delivering him from it, but by delivering him in it. You've got a thorn? Are you convinced you cannot serve God effectively till it's removed? Pray again. And then listen for God's answer. God will give you His grace. It may be manifested in a variety of ways, but it will come. And the best way to get through it is to receive His provision. 